If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We are uh, in this series. We're in week two of this series called The Sweet Life. And we're using Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23 uh, as a springboard for this message series that will really take us through the summer. Now, we're going to put a pause on it next week. I'm going to do a a message on fathers because... I did a message on mothers for Mother's Day, and I can't leave our, us hanging, right, guys? Okay, so anyway. Um, but you guys received one of these cards uh, last week, and uh, this is your punch card for the sweet life. And I explained this horribly. I mean, major crash and burn last week. I said that there were nine holes on here. There's only eight, okay? Um, there are nine fruit of the Spirit. This wasn't a mistake by our creative team. They wanted to give you a free pass, okay? So um, you have one freebie, but each week when you come in here, uh, make sure that you get it punched. And at the end of the series, and I believe we're going to be in our new facility by then, uh, we'll give you a uh, smoothie to celebrate this sweet life. And uh, yeah, absolutely, you can clap for that. Um, So anyway, if you didn't get that punch today, you can go out there. And if you show up in week four with all of them punched, just leave that between you and God. Okay. Okay. Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the churches in a region called Galatia. This wasn't a particular city, it was a group of churches in a region that was called Galatia. And he's speaking to them, and he has just gotten done telling them what the Christian life is not. And uh, he pauses, and then he uses this great word, but... B-U-T, not B-U-T-T, okay, teenagers. Uh, Anyway, the word but, and he pauses there, and he says, now here's how you should live your life. And this is what he says, and I want us to kind of look at this together here this morning. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. We'll be reading this at the beginning of each uh, Sunday in this series. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I want you to read that out loud with me so it kind of sinks in. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I began last week, and I'll remind us of this often, that these are not qualities that we can strive for directly. You just don't wake up one day and go, you know what, I feel like I should love, let me love. Just like I mentioned last week, a farmer doesn't wake up one day and go, I want to grow strawberries, and the next day he has a whole field, a whole harvest of strawberries. It takes time, it takes intentionality, it takes a step-by-step process to become like these things that Paul describes here in Galatians chapter 5. They must be cultivated, and then they must be harvested. We also talked about the key to cultivating these things to result in the sweet life in your life is to stay closely connected to Jesus Christ. There's a verse in John that says, remain in me and I will remain in you. And the key is to stay very closely connected to the one who can give you the power to live like these things that Paul is talking about. And he can give you the strength to become like these things that he's talking about. But we must remain in Christ. And that means spending time in his word. That means spending time in prayer. That means taking situations and filter, filtering them through how Jesus would want us to respond to those different things. 
So today we talk about remaining close to Christ and all the ingredients that I'm describing isn't a head-on thing. It's not a head-on solution to become more lovely, to become more joyful, to become uh, more peaceful. It is ways that we can remain close to Christ and then eventually and ultimately become like those things. Today let's consider that second fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. Now, Paul uses a word called chera, and it literally means a state of gladness. That's the old Greek word. It really has nothing to do with anything. But I will tell you, it's the most used Greek word in that original language in the New Testament, all throughout the New Testament, of joy or when you see the word rejoice. And in this case, he uses chera, which is the noun form of that word, to describe joy. Sometimes he used, and other authors in the New Testament used the verb form of that. But in this case, he uses the noun form of it to describe what joy is. And it's, it means literally a state of gladness. A state of gladness. I love how uh, theologian Martin Manser says it. I want you to catch this. He says that joy, and this is the way he understands it from Scripture, he says joy is a quality or an attitude of delight and happiness. I'm going to qualify happiness in a few moments. Which is ultimately grounded in the work of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm going to read that again. A quality or an attitude of delight and happiness which is ultimately grounded in the work of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think, um, especially in the Christian community and maybe today just in general in society itself, um, people wield and use this word joy, I, I think, very inappropriately at times. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've had those kind of weeks where, like, work is not going well, the kids are not going well, the relationship with my wife is not going well, um, you know, the car breaks down, the medical bills pile up, and I confide in someone and they say, just trust in Jesus and have some joy. And I want to go, really? Is that really what you're giving me? I don't like to use the word hate. I hate to use the word hate, but I hate that kind of response, don't you? It's rote, it's insincere. And joy does not come that easily. It just doesn't. And we have to face the fact that joy is something that we have to work on. It's something that we have to work on. It's something that we have to practice being. Because let's face it, life just isn't that easy, is it? It's just not. I mean, things come our way. Situations come our way. And joy is not as easy as some people make it out to sound. It's something that we have to intentionally develop in our lives. So let's dive into your notes this morning. You have them when you walked in, you received them. And let's take a look at that key point up at the beginning. A key ingredient in the sweet life is the ability to have joy, here we go, in good times as well as bad times. Okay, you guys are all awake this morning. And by the way, you sounded great worshiping. You guys sounded like a great choir back there. I love sitting up front because I get to hear you. A key ingredient of the sweet life is the ability to have joy in good times as well as in bad times. Let's face it, okay? When there's tons of money in the bank, when the kids are perfect, when your coworkers do exactly what you tell them to do and they agree with everything that you say, and when you know your health is great and you're strong, it's easy to be joyful, isn't it? But I would submit to you that that's not true joy. That's happiness based on circumstance. That's happiness based on circumstance. We need to consider what it means 
to be joyful. And so I want to spend the rest of our time here together on four key ingredients that we must have in our lives to become people who have joy during the good times as well as joy during the bad times. The first one is this key ingredient for the fruit of joy in our lives is a repentant spirit, a repentant spirit. I didn't want to start there either, but I had to. Because almost every time in Scripture where joy or rejoicing is talked about, it's connected with a life that is righteous. Not perfect, but righteous. Almost every time in Scripture where joy is discussed, where it's talked about, it's talked about in relation to a life that not is free from sin, but you have a repentant spirit. A repentant spirit. We cannot escape the fact that true joy cannot be experienced when habitual sin is present in the life of the Christ follower. And today's message, pretty much this, this uh, series, is for the Christ follower. So I want you to filter it through that too. If you're a Christ follower in here this morning and you have habitual sin or a lifestyle of sin and you know it and you're not repentant about it, it is going to be very, very difficult to experience joy. Consider the life of David, the man who is after God's own heart, right? King David. King David stood on one of his terraces one day and looked across the city of Jerusalem and saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. I bet that doesn't happen in Jerusalem nowadays. But anyway, he looked across her and he saw Bathsheba and he had an affair with Bathsheba. And if that wasn't bad enough, he sent Bathsheba's husband to the front of the battle lines to really to his certain death to ensure that King David would get the girl and Uriah, her husband, died, and he did get the girl Bathsheba. But David was a man after God's own heart, so after a little while, he began to be convicted by God about what he had done. I mean, he had murdered a man. He had murdered a man, and he'd had an affair with a married woman. And in Psalm 51, one of my favorite psalms, David cries out, in repentance. He cries out because his heart is burdened by what he had done. And take a look at what he says in Psalm 51, verse 12. He says this. I love this verse. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing heart to sustain me, a willing spirit to sustain me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David was burdened spiritually. I want you to capture that. He was burdened in his spiritual life because of what he had done. God began to convict him about what he had done, and he cries out, and he says to God, I have lost my spiritual joy. I have lost my spiritual joy. And there's no doubt that we lose many different things when we're engaged in habitual sin. David almost lost his kingship. He almost lost his royalty. He lost a friend in Uriah. He lost his character. But you know what he also lost? He lost his position in Christ during that time. He lost his position in God during that time. It's one of the things that we lose when we're involved in habitual sin. We have the potential of losing our spiritual footing. David also writes about this in Psalm 32. Take a look at this. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Have you ever had that kind of conviction? You know what we call it today? We call it guilt, don't we? It's not guilt. That's God's Holy Spirit convicting us of habitual sin or lifestyle sin in our lives. 
For day and night, he says in verse 4, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Wow, we know that. I came back from Atlanta this week and realized summer had come to Hilton Head. It's just hot in the summer, and David just felt drained, just burdened down by the conviction, not the guilt, by the conviction that he had because of what he had done and God's working in his life. Does that sound like a guy who has joy? He was stripped of his joy in God because he had this hindrance in his life, and he asked God to restore that. I've, um, I've always had a long, uh, strong love for cooking, okay? I'll just put that right out there. You know, right next to golf in my life is cooking, okay? Guys, you can rib me about that. I don't care. I love to cook. I really do. My mom taught me how to cook. My dad taught me how to use the grill. That's a man thing, right? Okay, so anyway, so um, I love to cook, and I'm teaching Sydney, the eight-year-old, how to cook, and we're having fun with that. But I remember um, when uh, I was growing up, my mom would get those Toll House cookie bags, you know, those Toll House cookie bags, and, um, you know, you get the butter and the sugar and you know, the salt and, and the flour, and you'd, we would make cookies. And so um, we would do this a lot during the summer when school was out. We'd make Toll House cookies, and even today, my favorite thing in the world, oh, big old glass of cold milk and a couple Toll House cookies. That's just awesome. So we would make those cookies, and I remember when I was about Sydney's age, I was about eight years old, and my mom said, hey, listen, I'm going to get the oven going for you. You get to make the cookies this time, Todd. And I was like, that's awesome. So my sister, my little sister, and I started making the cookies. And the recipe calls for one teaspoon of salt and three quarters of a cup of white sugar, okay? But at eight years old, I got the two mixed up. And so I put in three quarters of a cup of salt and one teaspoon of sugar. And we put those cookies in the oven, unbeknownst to my mom. We put them in the oven. Now, they looked like cookies, they even smelled a little bit like cookies because they had some brown sugar in there. But when we took one bite of those cookies, we realized, man, this is not a chocolate chip cookie. It was, na- it was like going down to the ocean and picking up something and biting into it. It just was nasty. I mean, all that salt in there. I had put in a, an ingredient in those cookies that made that cookie toxic. It stole all the sweetness from it. it tasted like salt. It was awful. And you know, that's what happens when sin is in our life. It just destroys anything joyful. It destroys anything that's pleasant or anything that we can rejoice in or have gladness about. Sin is so destructive. It is so destructive. But unlike those cookies, I could never get that salt out once it was made. In our lives, we have the power of God at our disposal to rid our lives of habitual sin. We have the power of God to rid our lives of habitual sin. So I want you to take a look at the first question this morning. Do I have habits or a lifestyle that I know to be harmful or refuse to give up? Hey, I want you to hear me this morning. Listen, listen. If you really want to be joyful, like if you want to have that joy restored, I mean really, like really restored in your life, you got to get rid of that. You got to let that go. You got to let that thing, whatever it is, even Paul The Apostle Paul, the man who wrote most of the New Testament, talks about having a thorn in the flesh. That's something in his life that he needed to get rid of to be used by God. If you want to experience that sweet life of joy, you got to get rid of that sin. There's a second key ingredient for the fruit of joy in our lives, and that is a God-centered life. A God-centered life. 
The apostle Paul encourages the Christ follower to tap into uh, God to experience joy. In, in uh, Philippians 3.1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, he says. Rejoice where? In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul was essentially saying that joy, and that word rejoice can be uh, uh, synonymous with joy there. It's a, the same root word as joy in the old Greek. He was basically saying that if God is not the center of your joy, it's not really joy. And in some translations, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice in the NIV, which I use, uh, NIV 1984. He says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it's a safeguard for you. I love that word, safeguard. Having God as the center of your joy is a safeguard in your life. And that leads me to the difference between joy and happiness. You know, when we have God as the center of our joy, there's nothing that can shake that. There's nothing that can trample on that. There's nothing that can topple that over. When we have God as the center and as the source, maybe that's a better word, the source of our joy, there's nothing that can take that away. But when we place our joy or happiness in people or circumstances or material possessions like cars and homes and really nice golf courses, which I like a lot, we, we lose it. We can lose it. And happiness is fleeting. Happiness is temporary. Joy is everlasting. Are you with me this morning? Do you see the difference? Happiness can go in a moment because you know what? The homes and the cars and the golf courses, I'm sad to say, can be gone in a moment. But joy, when God is the centerpiece of that joy, is lasting. There's a difference between joy and happiness. I heard someone, one scholar, I think it was a professor in seminary, say it this way. He says, happiness is random. It's not deep, and it's unabiding. And joy is everything that's the opposite of that. It's everlasting. It's solid. It's rooted deeply like an anchor. That's the difference between joy and happiness. Think about it for a moment. If we find joy uh, we can't experience true joy when our occupation or our jobs are the source of our joy. It can't be joy. We can't experience true joy when the source of that joy is money. We can't experience true joy when the source of our joy is vacation. Sorry if you're on vacation. Sorry about that. But it's true. <laughs> but we strive after those things, don't we? We can't experience pure joy when the source of our joy is our spouse. <laughs> No amens, okay? Guys, ladies, no amens on that one. We can't experience true joy when the source of our joy is our children. Parents, you can amen on that one. Amen, okay? It's tough when we place our joy and our happiness in something other than God himself. Paul reminds us in Romans 8, 29, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to to his purpose. So one of the key ingredients in experiencing joy is a God-centered life. I want you to hear this this morning. We risk joy when we become self-reliant, when we become others-reliant, and when we, when we become things-reliant. When we place our trust, when we place the source of our happiness and joy and life in other people, in us, or in things It'll just be happiness, and it'll be fleeting. So the second question I have for you this morning is, am I self-reliant, things-reliant, others-reliant, 
or am I truly God-reliant? Let's keep moving. The third ingredient for the fruit of joy in our lives is an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective. Um, I hope that I'm not the only one in this room who grew up with parents who had a paddle. Did some of you grow up with parents who had a paddle? Okay, we had a paddle, and the first paddle that my dad used when we were little kids, and he reserved it for those times that we were really bad. I mean, he, he didn't use it a lot, um, but when he did, it was rough. But he used a paddle, and the first one that he used was one of those little you know, balls that is on a string, and it bounces back and forth. And he used that on, on me and my sister uh, for all these years. And then I remember the, the last spanking I got. I think I was seven years old, and I think I smarted off to him or something and maybe did it twice in a row or something. And I bent over, and he spanked me with that paddle, and it broke into 20 different pieces all over the room. And I looked up at him, and he looked down at me, and we broke out in laughter, the two of us. And he said, I think you're probably too old for spankings now. <laughs> and... Uh, so there were other forms of punishment for me. Anyway, <laughs> from that time on. Uh, but uh, he would always say, and my dad was so good because he, he would, he would uh, discipline us and then he would tell us why uh, we were being disciplined and he'd love on us afterwards. He was so good. Um, but he would always use this phrase. You really need to have an attitude adjustment. <laughs> okay, you're with me. You need, Todd, you've got to have an attitude adjustment about this thing. And I would say 95% of what I got in trouble with was some sort of attitude adjustment. I need to change the way I was thinking about things. When it comes to joy, I think Christ followers need maybe more than just an attitude adjustment or maybe not quite an attitude adjustment, but sometimes we need an altitude adjustment. We need an altitude adjustment, not an attitude adjustment. We need to rise up above the stuff of life and take a look at what the big picture is, kind of have a wider lens of our life. Because let's face it, some things that come into life are not so fun, are they? Disappointments in jobs, a huge downturn in the economy, being unemployed or underemployed, having a spouse leave one day having a child who's wayward, having a health issue that you get a call from a doctor on. There are times when it's difficult to be joyful. And if we are down in the mire of our situation, we will become overwhelmed with what that's all about. I mentioned that we were in Atlanta this past week, and I grew up in Atlanta. I actually grew up in Stone Mountain, and uh, Cynthia and I had our anniversary, and we took Monday and Tuesday off, and the kids were at the grandparents. We had a nice time. And then on Wednesday, um, we went back to work, and we did some stuff in Atlanta, um, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But um, Wednesday was Sydney, my 8-year-old's birthday, and she turned 8 on Wednesday. So at the end of the day, um, we went to Stone Mountain Park, which is literally a mile from where I grew up. And I used to go there, and Stone Mountain Park um, is, I think it's the world's largest um, confederacy museum. But anyway, on the, uh, it's a big giant rock that just sticks up out. If you've ever seen it, it's amazing. It's a big rock uh, that's uh, like 1,600 feet tall, and it sticks up out of the nice rolling hills of East Atlanta. And um, on the side, on the face of the rock, is a, um, the largest 
carving, the largest rock carving in the world, and it's a picture of General Ely, Stonewall Jackson, and what we used to call growing up the other guy, because we could never figure out who it was. It's Jefferson Davis, and they were all uh, uh, Confederate leaders uh, in the Confederate Army. And um, each night during the summer, since probably, I don't know, the early 1980s, they've had a laser show. Have any of you been to the laser show? So, okay, all right. So they have a laser show. Well, um, we went to the laser show, and I figured out that um, I used to go to the laser show all the time. We could actually see the top of the laser show from our house growing up. And I figured out it had been about 20 years since we had been. And so we had a, a nice time at the laser show and doing the whole Stone Mountain thing, and it's changed a lot, and I had a lot of nice reminiscing. But um, I had been to the top of Stone Mountain. You can walk up the side, and it takes about 30 minutes, and it's quite a strenuous hike. I had done that a lot as a kid, but I had never gone up the cable car. So we got the family, we loaded up into the cable car, and we went up the side of Stone Mountain in the cable car. And what was amazing to me is as we got above Atlanta, and as we went further and further up, and it was a perfectly, Wednesday was a perfectly in Atlanta, perfectly crystal clear day, which is very unusual in the summer for Atlanta. It's usually smog and thunderstorms. It, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was beautiful. And we got to the top, and you could see everything for miles. We could see Kennesaw Mountain to the northwest way over there and kind of the beginning of the Appalachian Mountains. And you could even see the beginning of the Appalachian Mountains way off in the distance. You could see the beautiful skyline of Atlanta and all this lush green. And it was so peaceful. It was so incredibly peaceful. It was 5 p.m. on a Wednesday night in metropolitan Atlanta. It was anything but peaceful down there. I mean, there's traffic, there's cars, there's wrecks. It's crazy. But when we got above it, it just looked and sounded so peaceful. And you see, sometimes we get so in the mire of our situations, and we need to have an altitude adjustment. We need to get up above it and take a look and see what it looks like from a different perspective. 1 Peter 1.6 says this, in this you greatly rejoice. There's that word again that means joy. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But he says, for a little while. I want you to remember that, for a little while. Maybe tough right now for you. But you know what? It's for a little while. The Bible says joy comes when? In the morning. Joy comes in the morning. And I realize some of you feel like a little while is a lifetime. You know what? If you can learn to get above the fray, not ignore your situations. Man, you can be angry. The Bible doesn't say that you can't be angry about your circumstances. It doesn't say that you can't cry, that you can't have emotion, that you can't be frustrated. It never says that. But what it says is that we ought to find our joy in Christ, not those outside circumstances. And joy comes in the morning when we get our focus on Christ. Paul writes this in Romans 5, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Catch this, the second phrase here. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's a big perspective, isn't it? That's an eternal perspective, the glory of God, thinking about his glory. Take a look at what 2 Corinthians says, 4.18. So we fix our eyes not on what is what? Seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is what? Temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Those of you who are going through tough times, tough years, tough decades, tough lifetimes, 
when you can learn to rise above it, you're probably going to have the best eternal perspective of any of us. Really. You have the opportunity to have the greatest eternal perspective and realize that God's in control and your circumstances may look very, very dark, but he is faithful. He is faithful. So the question, the third question that I have is, am I constantly overwhelmed by short-term circumstances? Am I constantly overwhelmed by short-term circumstances? And the last key ingredient for the fruit of joy in our lives is a grateful heart. It's a grateful heart. Some of you have heard my story already, but um, <laughs> Cynthia and I had a nice Monday and Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, um, Cynthia's sister uh, and my sister-in-law donated a bunch of stuff for our church, for our student ministry, a big TV and couches. And um, so we went and we loaded that up. We went to storage and we loaded it up. And I loaded it on the, there's a trailer out there. You'll see it uh, today as you leave. I loaded it on the church trailer and we got it all and I just put it in there. And I knew that the next day on Thursday, we were going to Ikea. I think Ikea is the second greatest place on earth, the second happiest place on earth. There's Disney, and then there's Ikea. I mean, really, it's unbelievable. I love Ikea. Um, and Cynthia really likes Ikea. But we went to Ikea to um, purchase the furnishings, the cabinets and that sort of thing for the new church. And they're all that, you know, uh, heavy, heavy uh, uh, pressed board. And uh, they, were, they were in boxes. I didn't know quite how many boxes there were. It took Ikea like three or four hours to collect all these boxes. And we had the trailer and all the light stuff was on the front. Now, I've loaded trailers for years. This is a rookie mistake I shouldn't have made. But it was all light on the front. And they just kept coming with boxes. And I was kind of getting frustrated because it was late in the day. And I wanted to get on the road. I wanted to be back in Hilton Head by Thursday night. And I'm just piling. And we had a guy there that was helping us. And I was just piling stuff on the back of that trailer. Well, we jumped on I-75, started heading south, and I, I felt the trailer just fishtailing the whole way. And I was slowing down, you know, to like 35 miles an hour on I-75, and even almost jackknifed it once. It was crazy. And I said, that's enough. I'm off the interstate. Cynthia found another route, and we got on another route in kind of rural Georgia. And uh, we were going about 35 to 50 miles an hour, keeping in the middle of the road, and maybe we'll stay the night somewhere and figure it out. Well, at about 11 p.m. on Thursday night, um, we started hearing a loud noise, and then all of a sudden, without any warning, boom, our trailer went down into the ground. One of the wheels, the wheels literally came off, it flew off and bounced around the, the car and the truck and the trailer and everything and went into a ditch, and we were there on a rural road in the middle of Monroe County, Georgia, with a trailer that had a wheel off and five or 6,000 pounds on the trailer in the back. I was not a happy camper, I promise you. Um, I did not have joy at that moment, I promise you. It was not a joyful experience. Um, we were safe. We had a couple of very nice sheriffs who didn't give me a ticket for anything, and uh, they even helped us book a hotel room. We stayed the night, and I tell you, it really is true that joy came the next morning. We had to stay the whole day. They repaired everything. We got it repaired. I unpacked everything. I repacked everything. That wasn't very joyful either, but... Um, I realized something. My attitude and my altitude needed to change, and it changed when I considered what could have happened. It changed when I thought about the fact that I could have, it could have been fatal, it could have been very dangerous, and God protected us. He was watching out for us, and I realized that sometimes we have a hard time being grateful, and we have a hard time being thankful because the present circumstances are so pressing around us that it's hard to see 
what might have happened if God hadn't been there. And I want you to think about that this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances. In all circumstances. I didn't want to give thanks when I was unloading that trailer and reloading it on this asphalt little parking lot. I didn't want to give thanks when I had to stay an extra night in Forsyth, Georgia. But you know what? That was what I needed to do, and that's when my attitude changed. And that's our last question this morning. Am I grateful for who God is and what he has done in my life? Having thanksgiving and having a grateful heart can lead you back to a place of joy. You know, life without joy can be like having a disease, can't it? It really can be like having a physical disease. When I had my first physical in, when I was in my 20s, um, I remember asking the doctor, what can I do to be more healthy? And I was healthy, but I wanted to be more healthy. He said, exercise, eat right, sleep. And he said, and then he paused, and he asked me a question. He goes, what makes you laugh? And I responded by saying, Seinfeld makes me laugh, all right? And he said, I want you to watch a lot of Seinfeld. He goes, it's really true that laughter is the best medicine. But you know, true laughter really can only come from true joy. If we don't have joy, it's like having a cancer. It's like having something in our lives that's sucking everything out of us. I love what Spurgeon says. He's one of my favorite pastors and authors. He's lived in the 1800s. He was the famous pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And here's what he says about joy. There's a marvelous medicinal power in joy. Most medicines are distasteful, but this, which is the best of all medicines, is sweet to the taste and comforting to the heart. How are you doing with joy? Are you living the sweet life? Is your life defined by joy or is it not? What do you need to do today? Which one of those questions do you need to answer and work on to have that sweet life? Father God, thank you so much that you can give us joy, that the source of our joy can be you, that the source of our strength needs to be you. And God, thank you that you were the one that overcame death. You rose from the grave. And God, that's the source of our power. That can be the source of our power if we will just trust in you. Help us, Father, to have a different perspective Help us, God, for those who are in here today who are pulled down in the mire, they feel like it's quicksand coming around them. Father God, I pray in the strong name of Jesus that you would allow them to be pulled out of that mess because they focus on you. Help us, God, to not be self-reliant or others-reliant or things-reliant, but help us, Father God, in the strong name of Jesus, to be reliant on on you and to put our hope and our trust and our confidence and the source of our joy in you. And Father, I pray for those who came in here today and they are tired and they are at their wits end. Father God, in the strong name of Jesus, I pray that you would give them joy in the morning. God, I pray that you would give them hope for the future. God, give us the ability to put our trust and our faith in you. The creator of all things, the one who overcame, the one who continues to overcome, 
the one who is victorious. Father, may we put our hope and our trust and our faith in you. And God, may we live the sweet life of joy because we're following you closely. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you.